0: You're listening to Greater L.A. from KCRW, the show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. Hi, I'm Steve Chiatekis. The kitchen at Dorsey High School is busy. It's part of the school's culinary arts department, and these South L.A. students are busy making avocado sauce.
1: I think we need a little cayenne. Oh, I
2: got
0: you. Now, the students aren't just learning to cook professionally. This is part of an elective where students start a business selling this sauce. Sonia Mason Briscoe is the head of the department.
1: This is totally professional. This is what most students in college are getting in their internships and externships. And they're getting this now, 11th and 12th grade.
0: California wants its public schools to prepare students for careers after graduation. Well, here in South L.A., these teens are getting a head start by building a business, and it's kind of taken off. KCRW's Megan Jamerson has the story.
3: Anaya Brown is one of the business elective students that helped develop the sauce called Dorsey Green.
1: It's a lot of green things, you know, avocado, cucumbers, cilantro, all that good stuff, but when we're at the farmer's market, you know, you you have to tell a story that's going to make people want to buy it.
3: And the story goes like this. One day in 2021, the teacher, Sonia Mason Briscoe, was talking to a volunteer who teaches a weekly class at Dorsey. They came up with an idea for an elective that combined creativity with preparing students for a career.
1: Hey, let's take all these students and build an actual business with them. And so it started last year, which is completely awesome. The students were juniors at the time, and we knew that You know, it takes a lot to get it started, but they would be able to earn some money.
3: That's right. Whatever profits the students earn from the business, they keep 100 percent. This was an important part of the plan, says Mason Briscoe, because almost 70 percent of the students she serves live in a group home or foster care. Mason Briscoe says with a concept in place, she handed over control to that volunteer.
1: But then he had. His aha moment that I remember mostly because of him purchasing a avocado orchard.
3: Niels Cotter, the volunteer instructor, is a business guy from Pacific Palisades who comes in weekly to teach a business elective class at Dorsey. And when he wasn't teaching or brainstorming cool projects with Mason Briscoe, he bought a 50-acre avocado orchard up in Ojai that was badly damaged by the Thomas fire.
2: I bought this uh, avocado farm kind of on a whim.
3: So on the first day of the new business class in January 2022.
2: You know, I walked in and I said, hey, guys, like, you know, we may we could start whatever business you want. But as an example, we have free avocados now. Right. So because I don't know what I'm doing and there's all these avocados and we, they're ready to go. And then it was like, boom, boom you know, just these ideas are coming out.
3: The class of 30 students had ideas for recipes. They worked with another volunteer instructor in the kitchen to perfect a fresh sauce. No one remembers exactly how many recipes they tested, but it felt like hundreds, says Anaya Brown.
1: You know, our first recipes, what they were lacking, our next recipes added on, and we added on and added on until we got the nice green color that we have, the nice taste that hopefully y'all will try.
3: It's a light and crisp taste, with that avocado base supported by cilantro, spices, and the tang of lemon. With the recipe perfected, Cotter dipped into his business contacts and got the design firm Deutsch to volunteer to help the kids build a website and develop a logo. It's an adorable avocado seed made to look like an alien head. Then, the cooking. Student Juan Morales remembers this one day they were supposed to make 100 bottles of sauce.
2: And, dude, it took, I remember, like, we were come here, like, okay, it was going to take three hours, like, all right, for sure. And then by the time we left, like, at five, and I'm, like, so tired, I'm trying to do nothing, I get home, I'm like, bro.
3: They only managed to make 70. So, next time, they worked out an assembly line, inspired by a behind-the-scenes video of a McDonald's kitchen Morellis saw online. They were able to pick up their pace, but then the very large commercial kitchen blender blew.
2: I think it was me. I didn't say it was me, though they didn't want to get in trouble. And they said, like, what happened? I was like, miss, I don't know. It was only the students that so I'm not sure who.
3: This was all in preparation for their big launch of the sauce in July 2022 at the Farmer's Market in Atwater Village. They brought around 100 bottles and they sold the 12 ounce sauces for 10 bucks. Anaya Brown was there that day.
1: So when we got there, you know, we were all nervous, so you we weren't really speaking. And we learned that if you speak to one person, you know, more people will come. So then you have more people at your booth. And they're talking to you, and then you know, you go from not having nobody to a crowd of people.
3: As she gained confidence, she pitched Dorsey Green sauce like this.
1: We cut up everything with our own hands, you know, we grind everything with our own hands. And and like you could put it, you could put the sauce on anything. You wanna put it on a burrito, you can put it on a burrito. You wanna put it on a taco, you can put it on a taco. You wanna put it in cereal, <laughs> you can do that too.
3: And the pitch worked.
1: They loved our stories so much that we sold out on our first day.
3: But the story doesn't end there. When the students came back to class in the fall of 2022, they wanted to aim even higher. So they came up with a plan to do online orders. The food and dining website Eater LA got wind of this. And when it came time to publish their holiday gift guide, you guessed it, Dorsey Green Sauce was one of 30 items featured on a curated list. Things went gangbusters, says Niels Cotter. And one week later,
2: we totally sold out. Uh, after that one article,
3: how many bottles?
2: We probably sold, I would say, a thousand bottles. It was really cool. And we had our challenges. The first, like, 10 orders of 10 bottles, if you can believe it, they all shattered in the mail. And they, the But Cotter says
3: the customers were we. gracious about it. Now, this semester, the students are working on two more versions of the sauce, including a shelf-stable one. They are also selling branded merchandise online, and they are setting their sights on a potential partnership with local restaurants. All the while, the students are maturing and thinking more about their future.
2: These kids come out of these experiences with like a totally different level of confidence, which, you know, in a lot of cases that equates to happiness and sort of the next step for them, you know, what happens after high school? It's there's not a lot of guidance after that, right?
3: The end of senior year is quickly approaching for many of the students in this class, and it was on the minds of several when Deutsch was meeting with the students. They did an ad presentation for the marketing of the sauce. Morales got to see what the graphic designers were doing and how they were thinking through social media campaigns. It changed his ideas about life after high school.
2: I, I didn't know what I wanted to do for college, but once I saw how like Deutsch like I guess worked and like functioned, I literally switched like. My whole major to like, um, like graphic design or video production.
3: Whatever path these students choose next, they can put entrepreneur and founder of Dorsey Green Sauce on their resume. For KCRW, I'm Megan Jamerson.
0: By the way, you're not able to order Dorsey Green right now online, but keep an eye out on DorseyGreen.com to see when they open orders right back up. Well, high school can be a time of creativity and invention. But imagine being a high schooler sent to an internment camp. That's what Japanese-American students faced during World War II, when they and their parents and family members were sent to internment camps, some right here in California. For them, holding on to routine and rites of passage, like for Mike Hachimonji, was difficult, but also important. We didn't
4: have cars. We couldn't go anywhere. Uh, <clears throat> there weren't uh, soda fountains and, and restaurants and so forth. So, yeah, as far as that, as teenage socialized concerned, it wasn't there.
0: Despite the things they couldn't do, dances, scouting, music, even baseball, all played a part in their lives in confinement. And a new exhibit at the Japanese American National Museum called Don't Fence Me In takes a look at that experience during this sad time in American history. Emily Anderson is curator at the museum. Emily, welcome to you. Thanks for having me, Steve. Talk a little bit about this exhibit, what it's about, who you spoke with about the camps, and how you put it all together.
4: Sure. So this exhibit explores the experience of coming of age, which is one of the truly few universal human experiences. I'm a historian by training, so I refuse to call most things universal. Everything's historically, you know, like you can pinpoint when things that we think of as tradition were created. But coming of age is that shift from childhood to adulthood is actually something all, you know, like most creatures go through and certainly humans. And we can all relate to that, that, you know, when we're figuring out who we are and trying to sort of ide- like create our own identity apart from our families and seeking out our own friendships, our own interests. Um, And this exhibit explores all of that, all the confusion and excitement of adolescence, but from the perspective of what that would have been like for these kids who spent those years behind barbed
0: wire. A few of the people you interviewed talked about getting rid of their American names and taking back their Japanese names.
2: My name is Sumiko, and I abandoned this name, Harriet, Fukushima, where I became Sumiko, Teresa, Morimoto, Hughes.
4: So this is something that, you know, um, would have happened later on, um, because in the moment when they were in camp, they would have been um, motivated much more to to sort of shed what was Japanese about them. And this is one of the great tragedies for the community is that because what made them a target, what made them, you know, they none of them had been charged with crimes. Um, the entire community was rounded up and imprisoned only for being of Japanese ancestry. And because that was, that heritage, was what made them suspect. Families, individuals, you know, spent the months between Pearl Harbor and going to camp a lot of times literally getting rid of the things that were Japanese that they had brought over from home, the few treasures they had of home, and they got rid of them out of fear of being treated like traitors, which they weren't, but they were afraid nonetheless. And so, you know, in in more recent years, you know, for many of these folks who are in their 80s and 90s, Part of reclaiming their past and reclaiming their heritage is also about reclaiming names.
0: It sounds like scouting among these high schoolers, scouting was a, was a pretty big deal. Um, in, it in was. The yeah. Talk a little bit about that among the boys and girls who were who were there.
4: Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts both were these institutions that at the time were rare in that they allowed um, troops to be formed that from non non-white, non-English speaking, and non-Christian Protestant backgrounds which is why you had Koya-san Troop 379, a Boy Scout troop that became quite famous nationally for their Drum and Bugle Corps. You had a Girl Scout troop at the Methodist Church in in the Japanese American Methodist Church or at Mary Knoll School in Little Tokyo. And it was a way, you know, once you wore the uniform of Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, it was a way of asserting an equality of Being an American child, just like any other American child, even if you were from a Buddhist background or your parents spoke Japanese, you had a certain kind of equality. And within the camps, you know, these troops that had formed before the war, a lot of them transferred their um, affiliations to districts where um, their communities got sent so that they could continue to have Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts for the youth, for things for the youth to do. Um, to continue the sense of belonging and to also give them something sort of edifying and productive to do. Um, The parents were so worried that their kids would become delinquents if they were left idle. Um, You know, I think that's a worry of every parent of every teenager, right? So having the continuity of Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts was one way that these communities were able to sort of um, protect and continue to and that the kids themselves are able to continue to have a sense of purpose and a sense of belonging.
0: Yeah, and it's not just camping or scouting. I mean, teenagers like a lot of things. They like sports, they like dancing, you know, um, they like music, all of that stuff. You you interview a couple of sisters who had a club called Jugs or Just Us Girls, and there's a there's a backstory to that and sort of how Kids kind of act toward one another, right?
4: Yeah. So the Jugs or Justice Girls uh, were a group of girls who were in Manzanar. They were incarcerated in Manzanar and really wanted to play softball, but the boys didn't want to play with them. So they formed Justice Girls, the Jugs. Not only did they play softball, but they were super sociable. So, yeah, so some of the members were were really outgoing and were very popular. This is a time when to go to a dance, you had to, you know, sometimes you needed to have an invitation. You'd have a dance bid, which is where you would, you know, boys would sign up um, to go for different dances with girls. And all of those, all of these details of teen life circa 1943 were preserved within the space of Cam- these kids were really organized, and they would send out invitations and, of course, create the dance bits. And then we have on display this amazing turntable that was actually constructed in camp along with a box of records that an eighteen year old boy took with him. You know, people were only allowed to take what they could carry with them into camp. and what what does that include when you're an eighteen year old boy? your record collection um, so we've got this amazing setup of a turntable with the records that really re- reflects that love and um, enthusiasm for dancing and music
0: we'll have a link by the way to the museum at our website kcrw.com gla emily anderson curator over at the japanese american national museum emily thanks for coming on and talking to us today
4: absolutely thank you so much
0: listening to greater la check out the podcast anytime and tell us how you're doing at kcrw.com slash gla just ahead building parts of early 20th century la despite the challenges of being a woman in an industry dominated by men the story of developer florence kassler yours after this short break Onward now with Greater L.A. from KCRW. I'm Steve Chiotakis. Los Angeles has had its share of powerful real estate developers throughout its history. One of them ran for mayor last year, if you'll recall. One thing most of them have in common is that they are or have been men, mostly. That was even more true 100 years ago when Florence Kassler started developing housing and commercial buildings here in L.A. It was a booming town back then. And this former plumber and single mother from Canada left her mark on this city, a mark that still exists a century later. Hadley Mears is an L.A.-based historical journalist. She's written about Kessler. Hi, Hadley. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm all right. Um, Let's talk about Florence Kessler, a, a woman who wore many hats. Tell us about who she was before she came to L.A. and how she got into real estate development.
5: Well, Florence Kassler is this fascinating figure. She was from Canada. She married an American plumber and she moved and settled in Buffalo, New York with her husband who owned a plumbing business. They had two kids. She was a housewife. She loved art. She really loved music. And then he took off for the gold rush and she was left with this plumbing business. So she took charge, got her plumber's license, loved plumbing, and soon developed this thriving company that had 12 plumbers under her.
0: How do you go from plumbing, though, to, <laughs> hey, let's build some buildings, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a bit of a leap. I mean, there is plumbing in buildings, but right, this, I mean, to become a developer after after all of that.
5: Well, what's really fascinating is that she loved, loved music, and she talked about how she could never become such a good plumber without learning the rhythm and nuance of music. And slowly over time through plumbing, she got interested in real estate and development. And then through that, she gets into construction and building and development.
0: What are some of the buildings that she built that are that are still standing today? Or anything famous that... that... That we look at today and are like oh that there's a florence castler right there
5: well you know one of florence's specialties was she was really interested in creating industrial buildings that were beautiful so she believed that east downtown la would become this hub of industry and she built with the architect william douglas lee a lot of buildings in what we now know is the fashion district and they were all specialized buildings. So you had one for the graphic arts, one for furniture making, one for textiles, one for aviation. And probably the most famous of these is the Bindex building. It's like a lot of hers. The bottom floor is kind of an arcade with floor space and show space. And the above floors are all workspaces, these beautiful, modern, brightly lit workspaces. And the Bindex building today is a place where artists and Craftsmen have their studios. So it's still used for its intended purposes. Another amazing building is what was called, when it was built by Florence, the Renaissance Building, which is on San Pedro Street in what we now know as Skid Row. And it was actually turned into the Downtown Women's Center in 2011, which of course is an amazing organization, which is so perfectly fitting for a woman who really tried to lift up women and who broke ground, and made her way in this male-dominated industry of development.
0: And by the way, we're talking about, you know, a century ago. I mean, even today, it's a male-dominated, right? I mean, the, oh, the, the real estate development business, male-dominated business. So imagine, <laughs> I, I can't even imagine 100 years ago, what it was like for a woman who was doing this in such a, a male-dominated business. I mean, what what was she like in person? She She must have had a strong personality to write to to have to fight that.
5: You know, from what we can tell and from her interviews, it seems like she actually had quite a a kindly, soft, motherly personality. But inside, she was made of vision and steel. You know, she bragged to the L.A. Times in 1931 that right after World War One, she was one of the first people to build houses that we would now think today as kind of like condos. They were flats, apartment flats, usually two or four really nice apartments, but they were made to look like one singular, beautiful upper middle class home. So they were perfect for all of the families moving to Los Angeles from the Midwest and other places where they could come live in these really functional yet very beautiful homes at an affordable price. So she really believed that she had this vision and she did have this vision, and it was a huge contribution to Los Angeles's rapid growth throughout the 20s.
0: You said a word there, though, that caught my attention—motherly, yes. right? Which, which again, to, just to be in business writ large, right? That—that's a—it's a—it's a different way of doing business, like that. It's a
5: better way. <laughs> I believe. And,
0: and, and some would argue that way. Well, for sure. I mean, it yeah. just—it just seems like you know she was advocating doing something a little differently, doing business like that differently.
5: She was advocating doing it differently. And you also see in the fact that she talked about a group of, you know, 50 to 100 businesswomen that she went to lunch with. They had great lunches every month to encourage each other in their personal life and in their business life. She made both of her daughters uh, directors on the board of her company. When she was asked if women could do anything they wanted, basically, in the workforce, she kind of laughed and said, well, I had to, so I never even thought about it.
0: Hadley Mears, L.A.-based historical journalist. Hadley, thanks for thanks for your article. Thanks for coming on and, and telling us about, about Florence Kassler.
5: My pleasure. Well,
0: that's going to do it for us this evening. Tomorrow, actor and director Anna Devere Smith is reprising her Twilight play, about the 1992 Rodney King uprising here in LA. Hear from her what she thinks has changed and not changed coming up tomorrow on Greater LA. Maybe you have a story idea for us or maybe a, a thought or two you'd like to share with us. Maybe you just want to get the podcast. You can do all that at the website, KCRW.com slash GLA, or you can get the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Juliana Mayo, Nehar Patel, Phil Richards, Katie Gilcrest, Sonia Geist, Nick Malamponi, Amy Ta, Carlos Ramirez, Michael Stark, and Christian Bordall all had hands in this evening's episode. I'm Steve Chiotakis. Thanks for your time and your ear. Have a great night.